law, policy, and markets. The reality is that this virus, unless this virus is contained everywhere, it's not contained anywhere due to the interconnectedness of the world. Welcome to Millbank Conversations. I'm Alan Marks. Today I'm joined by Apostolos Gutsinas, a partner in Millbank's European Leveraged Finance and Capital Markets Group, based in London. Let's get to it. Apostolos, thank you for taking the time this evening to chat. Thank you. Thank you very much, Alan. I appreciate the opportunity. So I know your practice covers a wide range of international capital markets transactions, from high yield to investment grade, public and private equity, sovereign debt. Before we dig deeper, just starting at a high level, where are we now and where are we headed? Our markets for payment obligations, markets for financial liabilities. And they are the mirror, really, of the broader economy. So as this public health crisis has hit the global economy hard, basically affecting the ability of citizens and businesses to interact with each other, purchase goods and services, make investments, and basically consume in the broader, in the broader economy, this is directly hitting the revenues of all sorts of issuers of financial markets instruments. Corporate issuers, because revenues have declined. After all, someone's expenditure is somebody else's revenue in a global interconnected economy, both within a country and across borders. And corporate issuers seeing either a direct, if they are consumer businesses, or indirect, if they are dealing with other consumer businesses, hit on their revenues, their credit rating, and their ability to raise financing, and the ability to service their existing financing has been severely affected. IPOs, which is investments in new securities in the equity markets, of course, has come to a halt because it's very difficult right now to price risk. The spreads on debt securities, i.e., the price that investors demanding for investing in debt securities of either sovereigns, corporates, financial institutions, multilateral organizations have widened. And as a result, we see financial markets right now, in effect, demanding a much greater risk premium by investors and for the allocation of capital. This means that for the lower quality of credits in the debt markets, there is literally no capital markets activity, no new issuance. In the secondary financial markets, we see muted activity and much more expensive than it used to be. And in the investment grade space, which is uh, the markets for higher rated debt, uh, we, we see a, a lot of issuance simply because investors are flying to quality, albeit at higher interest rates. So it's very ugly out there for those in need of capital who have suffered significant reductions of the revenue. It's pretty good out there still in the functioning market for those higher quality credits. And it's more expensive for pretty much every type of borrower out there. And for the investment grade credits, are they, you mentioned there's an increase in issuances there. Is that merely because they they can and there's the, the market is, you know, the flight to quality, as you mentioned, or is it also that some of these stronger companies are also 
wanting to access that pool of liquidity and, sh- and hold it in cash so it's available to kind of weather the storm? I think it's both in the sense that if you are a corporate treasurer, you're thinking, okay, there's a lot of uncertainty. Nobody can tell for sure what's going to happen next year. But this market seems to be open right now. Yes, at a cost, but it's there. Do I know for sure it's going to be there next year? No. Do I have need for financing next year? Yes. What's the downside for accelerating my debt issuance program, ensuring that at least I am cash rich, I have financing in my bank accounts? Well, it's the increased cost, but at least I'm going to be able to sleep well at night. I don't have to worry about market access next year when I actually need it. So what would the prudent corporate treasurer do? They would just access the market now, so long as the sleeping well benefit is not significantly outweighed by a huge cost. In most cases, they just decide to to access the market now and weather the storm. Right. So instead of taking the money and run, they'll take the money and sit, which is maybe not such a bad idea. I want to look at resilience a little more deeply, too, uh, from a lot of what you just said. Look at the headwinds. You've got sluggish growth in the Eurozone before this. There was protectionist trade policy and tariff disputes from the United States, Brexit, of course. And the global economy otherwise, though, in the pre-virus world was, you know, coming along pretty well. We had high savings rates. We had manageable debt loads, strong employment most places, though even if it wasn't growing everywhere, and well-capitalized banks, unlike, say, a decade ago. Then comes COVID-19. How resilient are most of our clients in the current economic environment? It really depends, and it's impossible to generalize. Truth be told, the financial system today, the system for trading in financial liabilities of all sorts of types, is a lot stronger than it used to be. Yes, the overall indebtedness of the economy, the average debt that the corporate sector is holding, is higher than it was 10 or 15 years ago, but it is more manageable because the, the, the service cost of that debt is low. Yes, it is true that there were all sorts of macroeconomic trends that potentially could undermine economic growth. But overall, the financial system is resilient or was resilient entering into this crisis. It, it's very simple to distinguish between the likely winners, i.e. the firms that enter the crisis with a resilient balance sheet and are likely to exit, and those who are likely to be losers, look at the cash position, look at their debt maturities. If debt maturities are sufficiently long, these companies will likely do well if they have debt maturing in the next couple of years, perhaps combined with an exposure to a retail or consumer demand or a weak cash position perhaps not so resilient. So I think overall, the balance sheets of the financial institutions are strong. Leverage in the corporate economy is high, but debt service costs are low. And then if you want to see the relative strength of different borrowers, look at their cash position, the sectors they're in with consumer exposure versus non-consumer exposure, and then the term and maturity profile of the debt. Uh, if they are doing well on one or two or more of those metrics, they're likely to be okay. Otherwise, they will probably struggle. Right. So if you look at that range of you know different capital strengths or resiliencies for the clients that we have, and obviously not talking of any one client in particular, but as you and our partners in our European Leverage Finance or Capital Markets Group, ElfCamp, as we like to call it, are advising clients, 
I assume we're seeing a range then of different types of advice being sought. There's some who are worried defensively about protecting their balance sheets with whatever their liquidity or solvency concerns. There are others maybe in a position of relative strength who are looking for opportunistic ways to either deploy capital or boost their returns. And I'm sure there are some seeking guidance on just how to take advantage of government relief packages. Uh, are, are you looking at that across the board and are there other categories too? Yeah, I think this kind of, we, we are observing activity across all of those categories and perhaps a, a, a few more. So let me perhaps classify the, the, the activities that we see. You have companies that have been directly and materially adversely affected by this in the tourism, aviation, logistics space. Depending on their capital structure, some of them have short-term liabilities. We'll work with them to reprofile or refinance those liabilities to the extent possible, including with government assistance. Some of them have amortization payments in the next six to 12 months. Actually, starting in the summer, they are feeling pretty confident they will not be able to amortize that debt, i.e. pay the banks. So again, we are negotiating various types of waivers and forbearance actions. Then you have companies that at least on a horizon of six to 12 months, they feel pretty good strong cash position, relatively resilient business, but they are drawing on all of our existing credit lines and revolving credit facilities and other liquidity lines, also taking advantage of government programs across a number of European nations. There were some deals, some, some clients that were actually in that mezzanine stage of perhaps making it, perhaps not making it financially. This crisis it has clarified at least the question to be asked. It's no longer a question of whether they will need to restructure their financial balance sheet, but how they will need to restructure it and who is going to provide additional liquidity. But this crisis has simply accelerated a long overdue process. We are working for a number of acquirers of assets that the crisis has found between signing and closing a transaction. So in, in that awkward post-signing but pre-closing period where sensible parties now in this new environment are trying to work out how the deal perhaps may be modified a little bit, how can the financing work so that we just get through closing. Is a bit of that. We are lucky that thing in relative terms that we are working at, at for maybe a couple of investments that were, were such strong investment cases that even the coronavirus crisis has not managed to derail. Again, the MMA parties are renegotiating some aspects of the deal, but we are still confident that we will work through these issues to, to get uh, to get a deal done. And then and then we have a, a lot of those companies in the category that we described earlier, like looking opportunistically at the markets, perhaps less opportunistically that they like the outside world to see, thinking, okay, I think I'm doing okay, but our 24, three-year investment program can benefit from some liquidity. The markets are open. We don't know what's going to happen next year. Let's just try and do financing. So there's a couple of those situations as well. So I think it's a pretty broad mix across the opportunistic and not so opportunistic categories. You mentioned next year. I want to kind of stay with that for a moment if we could, because obviously we're all very busy right now with companies either that had deals in the pipeline, as you mentioned, that are still closing or that are dealing with the challenges of a new situation. Looking at just the volume of deals overall, whether that's restructurings and workouts or M&A activities or financings or refinancings, 
What do you think the second half of 2020 and 2021 might look like? I think it's obviously difficult to tell. It's a crisis exclusively caused by a public health issue. I think it gets really sorted out in a meaningful way when the public health issue is addressed through you know, medicinal remedies and long-term vaccination. So difficult to tell, but assuming a return to some normality over the summer years, I think there might be meaningful activity in the second half of the year. I think potentially also some uh, investments in uh, defensive uh, industries and sectors that are uh, more likely to be uh, resilient or actually potentially benefit from the dislocation. So I think I want to believe the, the fundamental thesis that as we go into the summer and lockdown measures are progressively lifted, then in due course, there is some remedy for the public health epidemic of that is effective and then we move to to a normality i mean clearly we we don't really know now there's definitely a, a scenario that is a lot darker than, than this so i think we are planning for the worst and, and we are hoping for the best yes nicely put i know you saw market dynamics play out up close in the greek debt restructurings i say a few years ago i guess it's been almost 10 years ago now uh yes. you know, tra- traders have very fickle moods markets are fickle most of our clients are longer-term investors or they're intermediaries who are dependent on market confidence. And now we're seeing you know, bear rallies in some public equity markets, maybe in response to the government interventions around the world. Maybe optimism of late has actually gotten ahead of some of the prudent caution that was there uh, you know, even a month or two ago. Medium-term signals are still flashing red. And the IMF is now forecasting that in 2021, even when things return to some kind of a new normal, the world economy could be as much as 5% smaller. What's it take to move sentiments, whether for clients and investors or markets or consumers, from fear to hope, and also to better connect financial markets and their noise to the real signals of the real economy? We don't know what moves markets. We don't know the direction in which markets are moving. We, we certainly have a lot of statistical data, you know, historical data from the way that the markets have operated in, in similar circumstances. One thing which is interesting, I was reading a compilation of such statistics the other day. The real economy, this is, a, this is from both the, the, the Great Depression as well as from the 2008-2009 financial crisis. Unemployment keeps going up in the cycle when the stock market actually starts to rebound. In other words, the financial markets tend to pick up the trend before we see the real life implications of what's going on. In other words, financial markets are always faster to predict and or discount the future. So I think this trend has been statistically observed in previous recessions. So it basically means that when stock exchange today is doing well, it's pricing in a positive development later on, even though the actual situation in real life today may be bleak and the other way around. And of course, in an uncertain, volatile environment, the markets are absorbing all of the different pieces of information, be it medical, statistical, economic, business, and occasionally it's just a sentiment that is reflected in, you know, in the front pages of the information newspapers or something that that is particularly striking out there and the markets move. At times of extreme volatility, I think investors 
typically, or at least the successful ones, they, they tend to look into the long-term view because trading on volatile markets and trying to time those markets in the short term is actually proven to be very risky. There was this legendary trader on the New York Stock Exchange, actually the Chicago Board of Trade, Everett Clip, I think his name was quite legendary. He used to say that the only traders who can claim that they can time the market are either broke or retired. And I don't know anybody who's retired, which I think is sort of puts this type of volatility and uncertainty quite uh, up. Yes, I think, I think that's right. It's funny, I'm mindful of a, a race car driver who once said, when you're driving on a track really fast, you don't look at the brake lights of the car ahead of you. You keep your eyes up and look around the curve. Certainly, that's, that's good advice. Apostolos, you're an expert on international capital markets writ large. As I'm fond of exploring with students when I teach, markets do not price risk. They price perceptions of risk, or what I like to call our collective cognitive bias. COVID-19 has caused a sudden shock to both supply and demand. My question to you is, for financial markets, which matters more in your view? The actual measurable impact on economic activity and employment, let's call it statistics, or the continuing uncertainty about the depth and duration of the slowdown ahead? Let's call that psychology. Uh, it's a great question. I have always thought it was both the perception of risk, if not matched by the actual developments in real life that are unfolding. So if there is a complete disconnect between the perception of risk and what is actually happening, the reality of it, then obviously the perception of risk quickly runs out of steam. So inversely, if there is fear and a perception of heightened risk, and then developments in real life are actually lending support to that proposition or perception, then I think people continue to make assumptions that whatever is being witnessed is likely to lead to the expected or feared outcome. I think it's both. If there is a disconnect between perception and reality that lasts for a long period of time, in the end, I think markets rebalance and then somebody actually smart calls the difference and trades on the differential between the two. And then ultimately, the market comes to rest, as the Austrian economist used to say, comes to rest at an equilibrium. Let's pivot for a second from markets to governments. In the initial stages of the COVID-19 crisis, not so much in China, but I'm thinking really in, in Europe and in, in, in North America and in capital and financial markets, the credit markets on both sides of the Atlantic were at risk of freezing up, at least some parts of them. Central bankers injected liquidity to try to stabilize the markets. We saw that in short-term trades for bank repos for U.S. treasuries, even short-term commercial paper, asset-backed securities. Here, beyond that, we also had the U.S. Congress appropriating over $2 trillion to protect individual households and small businesses, employee payrolls, and unemployed workers. And the Fed and the Treasury have announced an additional several trillion dollars of uh, capital infusions to support U.S. corporations and the $4 trillion U.S. Uh, municipal bond markets for securities issued by states and local governments. So while that's going on here in, in Europe, uh, what are the FCA, the Bank of England, European Central Bank, and other agencies doing? both to kind of ameliorate the economic impact of the pandemic and to stabilize financial markets? The policy response across the, the monetary, financial, and, and fiscal fields has been 
really spectacular. Let's talk about the monetary policy response. The European Central Bank and the Bank of England, probably the two most influential European monetary authorities. As recently as a, or a week ago, the Bank of England actually announced something that is completely unprecedented. I know that the word unprecedented is being used quite a lot recently, but this was truly spectacular. They said that rather than repurchasing financial assets from the government in the UK sovereign debt market, they will simply credit the account of the government with the central bank with monetary units, basically just printing money directly to the hands of the of the government, uh, keeping the liabilities on the balance sheet of the central bank. This type of action obviously shows the magnitude uh, of the policy uh, driver towards stabilizing and supporting the economy. The European Central Bank similarly has really used all of its policy tools to ensure that financial institutions have ample liquidity, that there is no failure of any commercial bank or other regulated financial institution for liquidity purposes or because of perceived risk of insolvency. The discount window, i.e. the lender of last resort function of the European Central Bank is available at more relaxed conditions. The collateral requirements have been severely relaxed. The asset repurchase program, which is the main instrument through which the European Central Bank is financing the financial system, has been expanded. Even Greek government bonds, just to, to make a reference to Greece, Greek government bonds are now being accepted by the ECB as collateral for financial and, and monetary operations. So any instrument at their disposal that makes financing easier, be it conditions for collateralization, interest rates, availability of short-term and medium-term financing are all being employed simultaneously at a huge amounts. That's the monetary sphere. We're not going to go through country by country, but in the fiscal and, and government areas, we see all of the major European countries announcing various programs for supporting employers, supporting consumers, supporting the health systems, taking measures that have a wide range of consequences, beneficial consequences for the broader economy, and of course, at, at a very high fiscal cost. But I think the governments are stepping in to facilitate an orderly functioning of the economy as much as possible, or at least to avert the free fall of the economy while the crisis lasts, hoping that all of these measures initially stabilize or avert the free fall and then gradually will allow for the and permit and enable the recovery. So we are seeing across the monetary, financial and fiscal space truly unprecedented action to support the economic activity and strengthen the financial system. I want to stay with that unprecedented. There's a tendency to say we've seen this movie before and you and I over the decades have certainly seen our share of financial crises and recessions. This time, with the exogenous shock of the pandemic, it does seem different. How applicable are the lessons learned in the past to the current COVID-19 situation? Put it this way, are governments and central bankers doing a better job this time with respect to both the size and the speed of their fiscal and monetary responses? I think you're right. It's an exogenous shock, as you say. It, it's not due to excesses in the financial system. 
it's a health problem that is crippling the global economy, and then that has the potential of affecting the financial system pretty dramatically. I think we need to distinguish between the different actions, the different instruments, and their consequences, and then we can rate them and we can grade them. So monetary authorities, top marks. We cannot think of anything that they should be doing that they aren't doing. But the problem here is obviously that ultimately, if people are at home or in hospital, not working, not producing, not consuming, no amount of monetary units in circulation, whether in physical circulation or in bank accounts, is going to conceal the truth of the matter, which is the economy isn't functioning because in the end of the day, the economy is about goods and services. Monetary units, i.e. currency, are simply medium of exchange of real economic activity. So they're doing everything possible to there isn't an additional financial crisis being created on top of the real economic crisis that is called by the pandemic. But monetary authorities are not holding the key to this. They're just doing everything possible to not make things worse and allow for some stability in the economic framework so that the whole economic edifice doesn't collapse. That is worth underscoring. Because of the smart moves by the monetary authorities, we're not at the moment seeing, or probably hopefully unlikely to see, a financial crisis layered on top of the economic contraction that's, that's been caused. What about on the, on the fiscal side? I think on the fiscal side, there's, there's always more you can do. Don't forget that the people hardest hit by this aren't people like you and me who can work from home and we can provide legal services or legal advice remotely. The people worst affected by this are unfortunately frontline personnel in, in the services sector, the schools in the, in, on the high street, uh, all the people who actually need to get out of, of the houses to, to deliver a good or a service. You can always do more to support these people. I mean, millions of people are going through, you know, their weekly paychecks until the next week. And when the paychecks stop coming in, it's, it's difficult to see how they can get through the next week, month, or quarter. So there's always more than the fiscal authorities can do. The question is, who is going to pay for that? Where are the resources coming from? And what is the overall bill for future generations? These are fundamental political issues of allocation of resources from rich to poor and then from generation to generation, intergenerationally, as well as within the various socioeconomic classes of a society. But I don't want to stop there in, in terms of what governments do. In, in my view, and I think I simply echo what a lot of other, a lot smarter people have said, the, the real role of government in this is the, the health pandemic and how to have a global government response in the identification of medical solutions, the research in vaccination, the ability to source and commercialize medical solutions to the problem and then make that available globally. The reality is that this virus, unless this virus is contained everywhere, it's not contained anywhere due to the interconnectedness of the world. So how are we going to supply medical equipment and commercially available vaccines and medicines, not only in Western Europe or North America, and even there in the developed countries, we see a lot of a lot of awkwardness in terms of 
countries partnering together or competing against each other for, for fundamental uh, solutions to this problem, but also in the emerging markets, in the developing world. This the high quality governance uh, on a global scale, I think, is more important than, than ever. And in my view, more importantly than simply fiscal transfers uh, or employment laws or labor laws or the tax systems is the global response to the, the health issue and the collaboration across nations. Yeah, I agree with that. I mean, the fact that we're all in this together, but at the same time, I think the differences in social safety nets and affordability, both between within countries, certainly between in contrasting countries like the United States from most of what you have in Western Europe and between emerging markets and developed markets, there are a lot of differences. In, in looking at Europe for a second and looking, as you said, you talk about future generations, but even closer than that, sometimes necessity overtakes affordability. How will sovereigns, especially in Southern European countries like Greece, Italy, and Spain, maybe even the EU as a whole, deal later with the increased debt loads and the, the, maybe even the future inflationary pressures that you see coming from this crisis? There's a big debate raging right now in Europe about, about the cost of this. I think there's, there's probably two main camps in that debate. One is each country, you know, the European, it's a fundamental question of what is, what is the European project about. You know, the European Union does not have one single health policy, does not have one single fiscal policy, does not have one single tax system. The resources available to health systems are diverse across countries. So when the health systems are diverse, the tax systems, the health policy, the economic policy, the vast areas of the economy are basically national, then the, res the response and the debt burden will also be national, albeit because the European Union is an area of solidarity between the member states there will be special instruments, whether it's the European Stability Mechanism or the European Investment Bank or other financing sources that are subsidized by the member states pursuant to their economic, economically proportionate ability to subsidize, i.e. each country contributes based on the GDP. So there will be solidarity and some financial transfers to the worst affected countries, but by and large, each country will have to deal with the problems through their own financing resources, including debt issuance. That's one camp. The other camp, a lot more ambitious, is calling for what, what they have coined as the, the mutualization of debt. This is basically joint and several liability of the member states for the debt issued by any member state, i.e. a system that is very similar to the, the U.S. federal uh, federal system of issuing debt, uh, you know, through the federal government. So this is obviously uh, hotly resisted by certain member states that see themselves as more fiscally and financially sound than others. So the debt mutualization, they see that as basically a debt subsidy of the South by the North. They don't seem to be prepared to go there. There's a lot of debate as to what does this mean for the European Union? What does it mean for the solidarity that is embedded in the European project? And I think most of the voices that belong in that camp, they, they try to, to point out that the harmonization or the uniformity of tax 
laws and economic policies would be fat that, that are necessary to support like a virtual or semi-federal debt program in Europe would take years to put together. We don't have time. We need to use the existing financial instruments available for this type of support. There. And so it seems to me that following also a European Council that took place last week, this is where we're headed. We're headed towards a usage of available financial instruments, primarily through the European Stability Mechanism and the European Investment Bank, that will, that will not have any stigma attached to it. So some of the most painful or politically unacceptable conditionality that is that typically attaches to, to such programs will be removed. And the only condition for the use of those financial facilities will be the use of proceeds from those facilities to corona-related expenditures. But there won't be any other macroeconomic reforms that will be attached as conditions to accessing those facilities, which is a big political obstacle in the southern European countries. So it seems to me that a compromise of sorts has been achieved. These measures have so far enormous firepower. There's been some talk of potentially expanding those measures if necessary through additional capital resources committed by the member states. So I think this is this is the direction of travel. It's it's hardly surprising. This is a, an urgent crisis and the political, legal and institutional arrangement we need to put in place for a potential debt mutualization of the financial condition of the member states. It is such a long-term project that it was never going to happen in such short order. So it seems to me that political expediency and realism are probably pointed towards one direction. I appreciate that. Uh, Apophis, thank you very much. I, I know you're busy. I really appreciate you taking the time to join me this evening. Stay healthy and, and stay in touch. Uh, thank you very much, Alan. I, I appreciate I was grateful for the opportunity. Thank you. Thank you for joining us for another Millbank Conversation. We trust you find our expertise and insights compelling. Learn more at millbank.com.